Kiara, Nihao, and hello. Welcome to the Cherry Journal podcast. I'm your host, Camille Yang. My guest today is Zach Casares. He is an experienced software engineer and focuses on modern web technologies. Zach is interested in education and startup cities, and initiated a couple of cool projects in the relevant areas. In today's episode, we talked about Zach's unschooling experience, innovating education, intuitive learning, and startup cities. I hope you enjoy it. I'd like to start with your background. Your website. I think it's the most interesting personal website I have ever seen. It's very unique and special. Would you mind sharing your background to start? Sure. Well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. My website is an expression of a, of the the sort of interests of my life. the The sort of tagline of the website is、uh, "Software and Adventure," which is a personal mantra that I try to live by. Um, you know, by by trade and by day, I'm a software engineer, and you know that's how I make a living, and that's where I put a lot of my you know my time and my focus. But I've always had an interest in understanding technology more broadly and understanding things that people may not conceive of as technological systems as technological systems. So this is everything from like. Uh, you know our, our shared interest in in startup cities to different ways of conceiving of、uh, of education and the role of technology in education. Really, this comes from、uh, my honestly sort of strange, circuitous way of arriving、uh, to my career. I was、uh, originally、uh, unschooled from roughly age like thirteen up. Unschooling is essentially you just don't go to school and you just like kind of find your own way、uh, as as a learner. And I did end up going to university. I did not study software engineering. I studied、uh, philosophy and economics.、Mm -hmm. And then I ended up working at a series of mostly like early stage startup projects in various different spaces.、Mm -hmm. I ended up transitioning to software. Uh, later in my career, because I wanted essentially to have that leverage to build things, I, I loved the process of building. I loved like being in the halcyon early days where it's like there's a lot of ambiguity and you have to create order out of out of disorder or nothing, you know. Yeah. And、uh, yeah, and that's pretty much what what I do today is I work with early ish stage companies and build their tech and. Talk about the business and try to be practical about building things. Cool. So, what made you quit school? What made you make that decision? It was actually a really hard decision. I was very unhappy in school. There's overwhelming evidence that a, a huge number of people are extremely unhappy in, yeah, in yeah. school. Yeah, yeah. So I was that. It's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think in particular, in particular, when I meet, you know. Very dynamic people, and I think highly creative people. You often hear that they were particularly miserable <laughs> in, in school, and so I'm not surprised you had this experience. You know, given given the projects that you're involved in and stuff. I, I think there's a stigma associated with being unhappy in school, which is that you must have been, say, a bad student or like you know not intellectual or something. But in, in my case, I actually I love learning, and I was a good student, but I was just、uh, miserable、mm. all the time. So I wanted something different. That's that's what it boiled down to. Wow. So did you start your own learning program after you quit school? I originally I started talking to my parents and trying to convince them to、uh, let me leave school. Um, when I was in, I guess I was in about seventh grade, and 
they just they wouldn't buy it. It's a hard sell on you know on on parents, right? <laughs> I, I don't blame them honestly, especially because at that time, you know, you're you're t- you're an immature adolescent, right? You're a twelve year old boy. Yeah. Right? No one trusts a twelve year old boy, you know. <laughs> um, so yeah, I uh, eventually what we settled on, both my parents had to work, you know, no one could um, teach me. And also my parents couldn't afford private schools. We actually Mm -hmm. toured private schools, but it was just like, it was out of reach. There was just no, no way to do that. So what we settled on was they were like, okay, we'll let you leave school, but you have to do two things. The first is that you have to have a job or somehow be like engaged in the workforce. You can't just like hide in the basement and play video games or something, right? <laughs> and and you have to show some evidence that you're learning. And what we ended up settling on was, hey, read a lot of books, take courses online um, and uh, hold a job. And they were cool with that. And I'm truly grateful that they were open-minded enough to consider wow, that as great. like the pillars of an mm-hmm. education. Um, and so that's that's what we did was it was largely just like rolling my own experience that combined employment, employment, reading, and then like following my interests by taking bespoke courses wherever I could find them. I think your story was featured in Barbara Oakley's book. It was. Yeah. So she she has a um, a chapter in a in a book called um, uh, Mind Shift. Mm. And she has a chapter basically on um, people breaking rules. And, yes. <laughs> uh, honestly, I think. I think my story was a, was like sort of the uh, the story of rebellion that she yeah. wanted to feature, you know. And I'm of course grateful grateful to her for that. But I don't know. I, I guess I never viewed it as as an act of rebellion. I was very rebellious when I was being forced every day into school. And for instance, I had I was having a bad relationship with my parents during that time. And honestly, almost overnight when I left school and was able to focus more where I wanted to go, I became happier, more confident, and my relationship with my family got much better because it was less like, here are these people coercing me to do this thing I hate, and more like, here are people that I love and that are my partners in life and that are helping me realize myself. And Mm -hmm. that was an effect that I never would have predicted, but I'm grateful to, (laughs) you know, to have had. Then later on, you back to university to do, to do your degree. Yeah, so I, I did end up going um, back to university. I, I also had a bit of a, a kind of a strange university experience. Mm-hmm. When I left school, school actually, dis- despite the fact that, for instance, you may pay taxes, if you leave school, you're forbidden from participating in anything that the school offers. Oh. You can't play in the band. You can't go in the library. What? You okay. can't like work in the shop. At least, you know, in, in Maryland, where, where I grew up, uh-huh. um, you're absolutely forbidden from any of these resources. So this was like, well, you know, how do I, I want to, you know, I want to like learn music. I want to do these things. So I ended up, uh, I ended up going to university early uh, because I was forbidden from participating <laughs> in my so age appropriate activities. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's just like sort of how backwards all this stuff is, right? Uh-huh. Um so I went to I went to a local university in the town where I'm from, where I you know I did some tutoring, and at that time I was very interested in music, and I did some music tutoring and some other courses, and then I ended up transferring um, to uh, to New York University, where I then got more focused on what became of my interest then, which was my interest in philosophy and economics, and mm-hmm. the weird thing, or like the yeah kind kind of the weird thing is which is slightly embarrassing but also kind of funny is that. I graduated college before I graduated high school. Ah. <laughs> I 
when I got to my final year of college, the people said, hey, you know, you're going to be graduating soon, but we don't have any evidence that you have a high school diploma. <laughs> and I was like, wow, well, I don't have one. So I don't know. Uh, what do I do? And it, um, they had never dealt with that before. Okay. And so um, what I had to do, I actually had to take proctored tests for um, things that I had already studied ah, in college, but at the high school yes. level, <laughs> so that I could get retroactive high school credit and be considered a high school graduate, and then I could graduate college. So all of these experiences inspired in me this idea that a lot of this stuff is just very arbitrary <laughs> and very, yeah. very bureaucratic. <laughs> wow. So that kind of motivates you to focus on the education. Yeah, it, it, it definitely made me kind of like, I don't know, let's say it pulled the blinders from my eyes in the sense that like a lot of this stuff, a lot of the way education is done, it's serving the needs of the bureaucracy or it's serving the needs of the employees of the education system, or maybe it's serving the needs of like a particular set of uh, administrators that have a particular ideology, you know, but it's not clear that there is a very strong, let's say, customer and like entrepreneur relationship or, or, or customer and service provider relationship in the world of education. And the more, the older I got and the more that I looked into it, um, including through the work of people like like Barbara Oakley, who you mentioned earlier, the more that I started realizing, wow, the, the whole industry is really, in my opinion, like very backwards. And there's a lot of evidence that it's a deeply broken space, sadly. And yeah. if you think about what it, I mean, it, to me, it's, like, it's, it's just like this tragedy of epic proportions because education is the way through which people's idiosyncratic talents get to express themselves. And so you think of all these people that are trapped in systems optimized, say for a, you know, systems optimized for the bureaucracy or the administration rather than optimized for the customer. And you think about how much innovation and art and just like happiness and just talent is just being squandered in it. It's really a sad thought. And um, that has maintained like that sad thought has inspired me a lot to, you know, think and work in that space. To some extent. What other projects have you been doing focused on the education? There's one main project in the education space that I um, that I worked on some years ago now. After I graduated university, I ended up working in Latin America for some years. And I worked for an entrepreneur that had a set of, of projects there. And I kind of moved between the projects and helped him get them off the ground and, and all that. And one of those projects was a, a small experimental college. The um, college was part of a broader university, really a, a very good university in Latin America. And being a good university, they were like, hey, how can we incubate new ways of learning and you know new pedagogies um, without mm. like disrupting our whole model? So they made what you could think of as like an education skunk works, like a place to try to try things that were very new. Like a venture. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was a project. It was called the, the MPC um, which stood for the Michael Polanyi College. Uh, Michael Polanyi is a um, was a philosopher, a chemist and philosopher, and one of his big ideas was this idea that you know more than you can express, and so when you are learning, oftentimes learning by doing yeah. is a more effective way because you're you're internalizing things that you may not be able to talk about. Mm -hmm. So that was the kind of vibe of the space. So the MPC, um, I was not involved with it at first but it ended up going through a difficult period. 
uh, a period of like organizational and financial dysfunction. And the um, people that were backing it said like, hey, do you want to have a crack at trying to put this thing back on a uh, stable foundation? And I said, okay, um, went into it and had to do a pretty radical restructuring of things to make it both a functioning business, like to make the, the numbers add up and for it to work. But then also I ended up changing much about the process, the educational process and the pedagogy itself. Um, in particular, the, the challenges that we had were, one is we didn't have a huge budget, which meant we couldn't hire tons of like high profile professors in, our, in the program. The other is that, um, and in fact, in Latin America, Guatemala is where this was, in general, you just don't have access directly to the levels of human capital that you get if you lived in like New York City or something, right? Yes, um, the other is that there was a really wide diversity of educational interests in the program. People had arrived to pursue yeah. idiosyncratic projects that they wanted to. They wanted to, for instance, like there was one guy that wanted to build a uh, a funeral insurance company, like this oh, very wow. specific niche. And yeah. he wanted to study all the things that were associated with that. You had people that wanted to do like event management or graphic design. It was like, how do we accommodate such a diversity of interests in a single place? What we ended up doing in the MPC was converting the college into essentially like a market for, for education. What we would do is that Every, at the start of every semester, uh, we would have all the students design what we called a learning contract. And the contract would specify all of the things, all of the goals that they had, of things they were going to learn, processes and resources they were going to use, a form of deliverables and how they were going to be evaluated. And then what we did was we actually took their tuition money instead of us deciding who it was that was going to evaluate it. We gave them the money, the budget to administer to pay a private tutor that would become the person who would evaluate and help them along in achieving those goals. That way, a person who wanted to learn about event management could literally just pay someone in the event management industry to meet and tutor them, or the funeral insurance guy could uh, pay someone in the insurance industry to evaluate their work. And it brought in the range of um, interests that we could accommodate. And that was that was like kind of the the pattern at the center of the MPC that allowed us to create this uh, diversity. Mm. So MPC's role is like a matchmaker. You find the tutor for them, then guide them through the learning journey. Yeah. So we played the role of matchmaker, which was um, helping them find the right person, mm -hmm. obviously evaluating yeah. the quality of the contract. Like, you know, we had standards for that. And then also we were able, because of how we designed the contract, we were able to plug that in to the legacy uh, credit granting uh, system see. of un the university yeah. so that they could actually receive university credit for these like very specific interests of their own. And they could end up with like a proper degree. So mm -hmm. we were kind of trying to hack the legacy system to accommodate what we felt like was a more modern way of um, of learning things. Do you think we yeah. we can like scale up this model and apply to other universities, or what's the challenges you are facing? I think it would be really hard to scale. I, I would love to say yes because like I, I would I would mm -hmm. love to just like have that kind of thing scaled up, but I think it's something that is very hard to scale because. 
every person really required a pretty individual touch. We knew most of the people, like, let's say there's, you know, 50, 60 people that we're working with on a regular basis. You know, you can know all of them and you kind of know how to guide them and help them. It could be bigger than it was at that time, you know, but I don't, I can't imagine having, you know, 10,000 people operating mm. this way. I, it's, um, <laughs> at least not at the same level of quality. So what else have you done in the education industry? I have a, a new project, which will, well, we're, you know, we're still, we're still somewhat in the early days of it, but um, with Barbara Oakley, the educator that you mentioned earlier, um, she and I are collaborating on a, um, a project that right now it's tentatively called the intuitive programmer. Um, that will probably change, but that will become a, a, a MOOC um, from a prominent MOOC provider. Uh, I can't share more specifics than that yet, but um, it will become a MOOC and um, maybe also hopefully a book after that. We'll see. But Barbara Oakley is like one of the world, she's one of the world's leading experts on the the science of learning. And she's best known for uh, a MOOC called Learning How to Learn, Mm. which is a very rigorous scientific uh, approach to understanding yeah. how it is that, that the brain learns and what are the specific things you can do to learn better as a, as a person. Um, that's been uh, an extraordinary success mm-hmm. with millions of students. And uh, it's just like beloved by almost everyone who takes it. What Barb and I want to do is to take many of the kind of neuroscientific insights that are from learning how to learn and similar work and I take it and apply it to to the process of programming and software engineering. The reason that we want to do that uh, is because programming and software engineering, we feel like it, it's, a, it's sort of like a world, very weird cognitive behaviors. It's very unnatural to sit in a chair all day and just like stare at abstract symbols and just be like, oh yeah, the semicolon was supposed <laughs> to go there, <laughs> but now it's here. And it, it's this weird thing for humans to be doing. And there's been a huge amount of investment in the tools and languages and stuff that uh, programmers use. But actually, there's really not been a lot of investment or work in the most important tool of all that sits at the center, which is your own brain as the the programmer. And um, advances in neuroscience, of which Barb is the far greater expert than I, right? The the advances in neuroscience that, that she has talked about absolutely have very specific things to say for how to be an effective engineer in your day-to-day and also how to learn programming uh, as you're as you're skilling up and so um we're going to anchor mm-hmm. a lot of the behaviors and habits and stuff of, uh, of an effective software engineer in neuroscience and put that together in a way that is hopefully accessible and, and fun for people that's cool, yeah. Because I just watched the talk you did with Barbara on the intuitive programmer. Yeah, I was mind blowing. Because uh, as I mentioned, I'm not a coder, but I did the coding program with a free code camp before. I do think with her way of learning, once you know you set up the like 25 minutes concentration time, then you use the the focus man or diffuse diffuse the man what was the yeah. term of that yeah yeah focused and diffused mode yep. yeah, yeah yeah so i find it's very interesting especially for the new newbie like me <laughs> yeah, look regardless of whether you're you know you're, you're new or not 
there's no escaping like the power of the focused and diffuse mode. And yeah. Barb also has some really interesting new material on the role of the the basal ganglia um, in essentially like what the the neuroscientific basis of expertise and intuition and how that's trained mm-hmm. in the mind and. Anyway, I, I'm super excited about the the topic, and I think there's going to be some really interesting, some really interesting points and framings on this stuff that, as far as I know, has not ever been done. And it's just because of the crossover between uh, a great expert like her yeah. um, into this new space. You know, yeah. I think she did a TED talk on learn how to learn. Yeah, I remember she did that. Uh, put the link in the show notes. Yeah, she's done some really interesting. Um, a variety of things. I I definitely also recommend her book, uh, Pathological Altruism. Okay. Uh, I imagine you probably have people interested in uh, like effective altruism or other kinds of ideas in you know in your podcast mm-hmm. you know uh, listenership, yeah. and um, uh, she has done really interesting research on uh, the neuroscience of altruism and empathy, and often and how often. Um, with good intentions, mm. things can go extremely, uh, <laughs> extremely badly, and that um, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and that all, and to some extent, uh, human beings that auto- will oftentimes excuse mm. bad behavior when they're delivered mm. through kind of altruistic, uh, you know, presentations and th- through these motives. But she has some really cool research on that, which I recommend. If, uh, Anyone's interested in effective altruism. Oh wow, that kind of stuff. that's very exciting. Yeah. So apart from the education program, I know you are very focused on startup cities since 2011. So you have been working on this way before Balaji made the startup city as a <laughs> mainstream word. <laughs> so can you please share some insights from your side? Sure. Yeah, I, I should say that I'm. Uh, I'm extremely grateful to uh, to, to Balaji for for re- mainstreaming that concept. It's 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 always been a dream of mm. mine to see like the term mm. startup cities in the context that we're talking about it, which is uh, mm-hmm. cities that are themselves startups, right? To see it in that context, talked about by uh, the mainstream of technology. I mean, that was honestly that was like part of the mission that we were working on back in from you know 2011 2012. Up through 2016, um, when I when I shut down the Startup Cities Institute, my view on the space is that um, yeah, there, there's there's so much history here. Like the space is very interesting because fundamentally it's about applying entrepreneurship onto a new industry that most people think is not an industry, and that most people think that startups can't be in. And that industry is what I refer to as community technology. Community technology, you know, th- th- mm. this is. This is my best ever, my best term for trying to capture the combination of systems that create an effective community. You can think of these systems as stretching from hard and physical things, like say a sidewalk or like a light pole or a security mm-hmm. camera or a street or like the kind of infrastructure of a city, but stretching also all the way to more social things and abstract things like legal processes or rules about building or how easy it is to incorporate a business, right? Now, you know, I'm biased from the perspective of a technologist, right? But when I look at that, what I see is a tech stack. In the jargon of uh, of startups, Mm -hmm. there's this idea of a tech stack. A tech stack is just a combination of complementary technologies that enable you to deliver a product. 
So mm-hmm. if we think of community as a product, then there is a set of concrete technologies that form the stack that enable yeah. that product to be delivered. Now, um, when I talk about community technology and like, this has very much been the framing that I've always been interested in, even back back in the day, you know, like when I gave talks in 2012 and stuff, I really believe that thinking about these things, these systems as technology is very important for our mm-hmm. ability to conceive of how to innovate and improve these systems. Right now, when most people think about infrastructure, you know, these systems, they think about them in terms of infrastructure and institutions and politics or or governance or something. The problem with thinking about things that way is that one, they sound like someone else's problem because most entrepreneurs don't think I build infrastructure, I build institutions. It's just Mm -hmm. like not, it's not in the frame. Right. And the other is it's, it's, they become abstractions and the conversations become ridiculously Mm -hmm. abstract. So, you know, when you, when you, for instance, when I lived in, lived in Guatemala and, um, and I've also done some, some traveling and some research in very difficult, very challenged communities, like what a lot of people would think of as slum communities around the world. When you go there and you talk to people, they don't talk to you about human rights. They don't talk to you about political will. They don't talk to you about transparency. They talk to you about very specific, concrete problems in technology. Mm. I don't have an electricity hookup. Uh, There's gangs that patrol the streets. (laughs) The police keep extorting me. I can't incorporate a business because it costs $1,000 and I live on $2 a day. It's like the thing that drives me crazy as an engineer is like when you hear these conversations and you hear how specific and concrete they are, that they're very particular problems in very particular pieces of the community tech stack. But then you go to an event on, say, um, uh, you know, international development, and you basically just hear a bunch of consultants and politicians talking in abstractions about how we need to make a commitment to expanding access or like the, these kind of like big proclamations. Mm. Honestly, yeah. it, it just drives me. I, I appreciate that there are good intentions coming out of that space, but it drives me crazy because it, it is as though. The conversation is as though no one has any idea how technology gets better, but it's not really that it's not like the forces that improve technology are a giant mystery. Like we know that technology improves through trial and error via startups, like not all startups succeed, but startups take technologies and ideas about Mm -hmm. the market, bundle them together, put them on the market. They survive or they don't. And the ones that survive get to scale and deliver new innovations to the market. And the community technology stack, as it is conceived of today and treated today, is basically this weird walled off industry that is the exclusive domain of NGOs, like international organizations, charities, government agencies. Mm -hmm. It's like, where are the startups in this hugely valuable industry? That is the question that, um, that, that keeps me up at night. There is no reason that startups can't go and eat the community technology stack and provide these technologies and innovate them just as they have in tons of other industries before. When I say this to people, people will often mm-hmm. retort to me and they'll say, well, you know, Zach, it's not the same thing. Uh, building, uh, building a neighborhood, it, it's capital <laughs> intensive. There's network effects. Like people will free ride on them, all these things. And it's like, you know, to me, it's like, look around you. Startups are building reusable rockets that are putting people like normal people into orbit. 
Startups are like, they're tearing apart like automation, manufacturing, shipping, vehicles. It's all around us. What is it that makes us think that startups cannot build a street, yeah, you know, right. what, and, mm -hmm. and houses that actually work for people? And if you consider that much of the much of the dysfunction that you see when you live in a you know developing world environments, you know when you see the concrete problems, a lot of it is that like there's distribution problems. In other words, community technologies are not able to reach where people are. There's cost problems, which is that like a good road mm -hmm. or a you know a good uh, you know a security guard is not affordable to the people that are there. It's like these are the bread and butter problems that startup, like technologists mm. and entrepreneurs solve every single day. And I want like the, it, it, I will die a happy man if the only thing <laughs> I can accomplish in my life is to convince more yeah. founders to go into this industry of community technology and aggressively pursue the same kinds of like vertical integration, cost-saving innovation, like business model refinement, the kinds of concrete things that are really going to make this stuff accessible and possible to people. So that's like that. That's my uh, my mini TED Talk rant here, Camelia. I'm sorry, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very yeah. passionate about about yeah. this subject, and I'm um, I I can't share too many details right now, but I am looking forward to being more actively involved in this space here in the in the near future. I, I care about it very much, and I I, I want to be involved. Yeah, love your passion here. It's it reminds me about um, Chinese government because they have the central the central method to build the village from the scratch. I'll say all the poor, you know, the poverty rate in China. I don't know the specific number, but uh, people living in rural China area, they do feel the significant improvement of their life. If we can gather enough people and uh, resources, we can definitely achieve the startup city goals. I don't know what's the gatekeepers here. Why not many startups, founders, they want to go into this area? Yeah, I mean, there are there are definitely real serious uh, obstacles to doing it, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's expensive to mm. build to build infrastructure and systems like that. Yeah. Um, and then depending on so again, if you, if we go back to the idea of a uh, a stack of technologies uh, underpinning community, mm -hmm. some of those technologies are uh, cheaper and more tractable and easier to provide than others. If we go towards the more say uh, legal side of things, there's obviously huge barriers, which is that you have to somehow get negotiate with the government to open up some sphere of autonomy mm -hmm. for you to go and innovate in that dimension. There is yeah. precedent for, for those. And, you know, there are a lot of people in this space um, very focused on that particular dimension, uh, what we might think of as the, mm -hmm. you know, the legal or governance innovation dimension. Um, I, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. And there's a lot of great work there. But in my opinion, there's a lot that, that that's one part of the stack. And like, even mm -hmm. saying, hey, we improved the governance for uh, someone in some far flung community somewhere that still doesn't solve the very concrete, like I don't have electricity, my street is not safe, you know, all, these kind of problems. Mm -hmm. So I'm also very interested in innovations in the more, this more like meat space concrete stuff. Um, one project that is not, you know, that they're not really doing, I, I should say a good example of a project that is not 
innovating on, let's say, the governance dimension, but to my mind is like a very cool and innovative new startup city project is cul-de-sac um, outside Tempe, Arizona. Cul-de-sac is a startup that was backed by Y Combinator, and they're building a car-free neighborhood. So if you if you think about what, you know, some of the innovations here, it's like the architecture itself reflects a fundamentally different value proposition about the community. It's like, hey, we, people want to live in an environment where there are fewer cars and it's nicer, more pleasant to walk around. And maybe there's more green space and parking is not like this constant headache, all of this stuff. So cul-de-sac is really innovating on how that value proposition is delivered. Um, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I saw a cool article where cul-de-sac is partnering with them. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was Lyft and some other transit providers to give every person in the neighborhood, it's like $3,000 mm -hmm. worth of transit credits for scooters and, and ride sharing and stuff. So again, like this is, that's real innovation on the value proposition of, of community. And that is not uh, something that required uh, some kind of partnership with government yeah. or something like that, but it's still real innovation mm -hmm. and uh, it's cool. Mm. Yeah. What do you think the cryptocurrency and uh, currently DAO play in the startup city? Cause I see people start to fundraising to build a city doll or some project yeah. like that. What's your thought? Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I, I have a very, I have a pretty like neutral perspective in the sense that I'm not like super excited, but I'm also not pessimistic. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I guess just because it, it feels so early that, that it's a, you know, and, I, and I'm not an expert, you know, in, in blockchain technology. So mm. I, you know, I, I learn it. I learn about these things as I as I go along, right? Um, certainly, I think the cryptocurrency space, merely by virtue of how much wealth it has created and the kind of people that it has created wealth for, will be very important mm. to the future of startup cities. Because I think uh, uh, it's quite likely that uh, funding and interest and early adopters and stuff will come out of the cryptocurrency space. Um, there's, you know, people talk about uh, currency innovation as well. Like, could you actually have a currency that is uh, unique to a startup city in this? You know, I don't see why not. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure that I have not encountered a very compelling, like particular case for why, um, why you would want that rather than just like live somewhere and then use Bitcoin or something that's already established. Right. Um, but that's innovation. Back in 2013, I did a, a small project called MuniBit, which was focused on trying to apply uh, blockchain technology to municipal finance. Okay. The idea being is that you would have a ledger that would transparently show how every dollar in a municipality was uh, shared. Um, so like, I think there's adjacent innovations, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe like that. Or things like uh, land land titling being on the blockchain as like a less corruptible form of that. That's also interesting. I guess for me, I don't see any of these things as absolutely mm. necessary to pursue innovations in startup cities. But I do view them um, as a uh, let's say as a as sort of a fellow traveler innovation or as an adjacent innovation to what's going to go on there. And, and I wish people who are doing things like trying to like you know. Cabin Dow, City Dow, mm -hmm. these kind of projects. I wish them the absolute best. Like I hope that they're right and they succeed because it would be awesome. Yeah. They do. 
So you mentioned you had some interesting life experience in Guatemala or Ghana, like slams. Would you mind sharing some stories? Yeah, sure. My, my I guess my interest first, my interest in um, uh, all of that really started when I did this kind of like journalistic excursion um, in 2011 with the Kenya National Alliance of Street Vendors and Informal Traders. Uh, Kenasnit oh. is the, the acronym. Yes. <laughs> and they're, they're, they still exist. They're a, um, oh. they're a big umbrella organization, kind of like a union for uh, the people who are what in the jargon is called informal entrepreneurs. It's like some guy who's selling you bananas like at a, at a traffic stop in the middle of Kenya or someone who has a, a clothing stand on the side of the street or something like that. Um, I got really interested in this because I, uh, I met this gentleman named Robert Newworth who has a wonderful book called uh, Stealth of Nations, which is a play mm-hmm. on the term, The Wealth of Nations, right, by Adam yeah. Smith, where he really um, made a compelling argument that all around the world, the informal economy where these people like the members of Kanasvit live, they control an absolutely enormous portion of uh, global GDP and of like em- the employed population. If I remember the numbers correctly, 60% of the world's employed population works essentially outside the formal legal system of, uh, of any country oh. in the informal economy. And if we took all the people who work in the informal economy and we summed up all of their businesses and the, the, the wealth that they create, it would actually be the third largest economy on earth. Wow. It would only be behind the United States and China. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it's like, w- sometimes when I talk about, oh yeah, I went and hung out with these street traders in Kenya, it sounds like some weird like thing on the fringes, <laughs> but by the numbers, it's yeah. actually like very central to the, mm-hmm. the, the world economy and uh, the economic future you know, of, uh, of the human race. So anyway, I spent uh, time with these uh, street traders um, and traveled all around Kenya with them. And I tried to understand their supply chains and like how their business model worked Mm. and like what were the problems that they were encountering. And this was really kind of the first set of this was the first experience where I had where I started thinking about like, what are the specific problems? Right. Like not not abstract things like these people need more human rights. I'm certainly not opposed to that. But when, again, when you talk to the traders, they, they, they talk about like very concrete things, right? So that was my first exposure to that. I, I, I spent time, for instance, with, um, you know, in, informal security guards. And I, like, I interviewed the owner of a, of a security company, which was very, it was very strange um, to see how policing services are either replaced or augmented by these essentially entrepreneurial offerings, which was like this whole world that I didn't know Mm. existed. There are, uh, if you go to wholesale markets, oftentimes people are doing business Mm. with like no contracts whatsoever. So they will be, they will be on the phone with someone in China that says, Hey, ship me this tarp of clothes. And they have no agreement whatsoever. And they send them like uh, money through some like digital payment system. And then they hope the thing shows up and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't because, you know, it's, it's hard to trust over like such a complex transaction with no contract, right? Sure. You know, there, there's these rich networks of mutual aid societies where people are providing insurance. There are courts that are basically held in like 
vegetable stalls or on garbage mounds where where tra- traders are basically fighting it out like they would in a business court in you know in Delaware or something mm-hmm. but there it's like some some dusty vegetable stall where a uh, a respected member of their industry is arbitrating that dispute or they'll hire um they'll hire uh, law students from like yeah. a local university or okay. something like that so the the point is that there there really is this amazing rich network of underground entrepreneurship mm. that provides this whole range of um what i referred to as community technologies early mm-hmm. in our conversation dispute yeah. resolution and infrastructure and, and all that kind of stuff so um, when I got to Guatemala, I had, and Latin America in general, I had um, some experiences that are somewhat darker uh, in the sense that, um, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was once extorted by um, the police, uh, you know, the, the police had machine guns and I was wow. like driving late at night. And, um, you know, it was, it was very scary. You know, yeah. they, they make you get out of your car. And they line you up against, you know, they line me up against a wall. Wow. And at that time, I spoke very little Spanish. And so it was hard for me even to understand, like, what was going on. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I thought they were going to shoot me. And then they planted drugs in our yeah. car and claimed that, you know, we were drug traffickers and demanded that, you know, said, oh, but you can get off if only you make a donation to, you know, such and such a cause. Right. And that's what we did. We, I'm like, I'm not proud about it, but like, we felt, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, what choice do you have? You're in a dark alleyway with guys with guns. They're demanding money. I gave them the money. You know, I was also robbed by a youth gang, which was also very scary, which was, um, I was coming home and was at a stoplight and, um, I was behind the lanes were blocked by two cars in front of me. It was a two lane road. So I couldn't drive anywhere. And there was a, um, uh, a kid, basically a child, like a 15 year old came up and started uh, with a handgun and oh tried God. to smash oh the uh, driver's side window with the handgun and uh, demanded that we roll down the mm-hmm. window, which we did. And then um, put, put the gun to our heads and demanded our cell phones, which we gave to him. Mm-hmm. And then he left. And look, I, I should say that like these experiences, like, you know, they're, they're obviously like, tragic and traumatic experiences but for me what they did was they drove home how high the stakes Mm -hmm. are for improving this stack of technologies community technology of which security is a cornerstone Mm -hmm. and it made me grateful also for you know i'm an american which is it's it's a privilege to live in the united Mm -hmm. states where like i can walk around my my home city of denver and like no one's going to pull out a gun and rob me like that. And the police aren't going to extort me, you know, and uh, that's a privilege that hopefully can be extended to a wider variety of people yeah. uh, over time. Yeah, your experience remind me about the movie called City of God. They filmed in Brazil. In Brazil, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, you can see yeah. those little kids, they, yeah, they need to make a live and they do all those dangerous yeah. things and uh, ethnical things, but they don't have a choice. But I do think technology will, will help them. Like what's happening in Nigeria, you can see they use technology to just build wealth. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do feel optimistic about that. Mm. Even in China, I, I see this 
street vendors. They used WeChat payment with facial recognition. Every time I go back to China, I got mind blown. <laughs> Just see the technology change the people's life. Absolutely. I'm very yeah. It reminds me about your Twitter cover photo. Where did you get that one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um yeah I. My Twitter cover photo, at least、uh, yeah. right now, is is an image from Broad Group, which is a Chinese construction company,、um, and it says "Build Everlasting Civilization." And when I saw that that was their company slogan, I just thought, "God, this is such an epic <laughs> company slogan!" You know,、yes. and and I'm, I'll be honest with you, Camelia. One thing that、um, that I despair of a little bit in the United、mm-hmm. States right now is.、Um, A lot of companies, and I would say in particular, unfortunately, tech companies. There's a certain degree of like cynicism and negativity about technology and and building. And I think that like if I went into the this you know a, a lot of、uh, companies where I've worked or like the average startup, and I was like, build everlasting civilization. I think most people would would look at me like I'm a like I'm a weirdo and I'm overly <laughs> optimistic and like yeah,、uh, sort of a bit ridiculous, right? It just、mm-hmm. seems. There's this kind of cultural vibe that sort of only silly and childish people that aren't sophisticated enough to recognize how broken everything is are optimistic and like really enthusiastic about the future. And I hate that about modern、mm. American culture. Like I, I want that to change, and、um, I try to live my life and like speak in a way that is like contrary to that because I want、mm-hmm. that. I want that meme to reverse itself. So anyway, build everlasting civilization. Uh, I thought was a it was an epic company slogan, but in particular, I was interested in it because Broad Group arguably is accomplishing their mission because they are the pioneers of a modular form of construction、yeah. that massively lowers the cost and speeds up the time it takes to build、mm-hmm. uh, to build buildings. So they built a I think it was a ten story Building in, I think it was 28 hours、hmm. at quite low cost. And and again, if you're if you're interested in startup cities and the kinds of themes that that you and I have been discussing, this is a perfect example、hmm. of the kind of significant innovation that、uh, attacks a piece of the community technology stack.、Mm-hmm. Right?、Yeah. If it doesn't take 10 years and hundreds of millions of dollars to build a bunch of houses or you know a, a neighborhood, right?、Uh, that makes it relatively more accessible. To、uh, create experiments in community, to build a minimum viable community where、mm-hmm. you're prototyping the project, and also to hopefully reach the lower end of the market where people、mm-hmm. need things、yeah. like、uh, you know the, the housing and infrastructure that could be enabled by broad groups innovation. So、mm-hmm. yeah, I'm a I'm I'm a fan of the company. <laughs>、oh, I see. Yeah, because this slogan is super common in Chinese companies. A lot of them use kind of a similar concept. Yeah, sometimes you feel like, wow, yes, so like utopia. But、uh, they do、yeah. kind of show people the vision they are going towards too. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and and look like. I'm not big for,、um, you know, big, big on utopian visions or, or anything、mm-hmm. like that. Like, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a builder person. All I do <laughs> every single day is just see everything is broken all the time. You know, like that, that's my whole world of, of engineering, right?、Uh-huh. Um, so I'm not like sold on utopian visions, but、mm. speaking in a way that communicates like the future can be better.、Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I view that as just like. 
to me is like a, a healthy psychology as far as true, I'm concerned. True. It's not it's not believing that everything is going to be perfect. It's that <laughs> the the future can be marginally better or less imperfect than mm-hmm. it is today. You know, mm-hmm. that's good <laughs> yeah. saying. Yeah, and one last thing I want to talk about is uh, Benjamin Booms two sigma problems. Oh yeah, sure. yeah. I encountered that link, but uh, I have no idea what is that. Would sure. you explain about <laughs> this one? <laughs> so, um, uh, Benjamin Bloom was like a, an education theoretician, and a, I think a psychologist by training, as I recall. He discussed. He did some experiments in the 1980s that showed that through individual tutoring. And a、uh, pedagogy called mastery learning, and mastery learning is basically like you don't advance to the next thing until you've done really well on the first thing. It's like very kind of common sense. Through individual tutoring and mastery learning, he could achieve a、uh, two standard、mm-hmm. deviation improvement over the control group. So that's where the two sigma comes from, the two standard deviation improvement. So that meant, as I recall, it was like the The average member of the experimental group performed better than ninety-eight percent of the control group, which is essentially like, especially in something like education.、Um, you may know this already, but education is a field that has suffered very badly、um, through something that, in recent years, has been called the replication crisis, which is that a lot of research. Can't be replicated, and lots of stuff、mm-hmm. just turns out it's just like nonsense everywhere. And um, um, there's been follow-up studies to Bloom's Two Sigma study, and、uh, they have showed lesser but still significant improvements. And、uh, where it's been tried, it seems like there's some like signal、mm-hmm. truth here. Ironically, when you hear of Bloom's Two Sigma finding, it's always framed as Bloom's Two Sigma、okay. problem. And the reason it's framed as a problem is because Bloom decided at the conclusion of his、uh, research, well,、uh, we found this like amazing, potentially amazing educational innovation and way of teaching, but no society can scale the idea of tutoring everyone through mastery、mm-hmm. learning. So、uh, what are we going to do?、It's、we can't really do anything、yeah. about this. Like it's a problem, right?、Um, I've I've kind of like mind blown that that's the conclusion because it's just like wait we maybe discovered this amazing thing like why is this not a solution <laughs> that we're trying to figure out how to make real you know so um anyway the conclusion here is that um Bloom's two sigma finding、uh, has been applied to great effect in particular niches for example Salman Khan's、uh, the the great innovator behind Khan Academy.、Uh-huh. Uses mastery learning, and arguably, Khan is himself a sort of scaled、yeah. individual tutor for millions、mm-hmm. of students. And it's also been applied by founder Luis Van Ahn in Duolingo,、ah, yes. the language learning、yeah. application. And again, Duolingo uses this kind of mastery learning approach where you're only advancing. And again, it's not quite the same as Salman Khan, but there is this、uh, as Khan Academy, but. Um, there is this aspect of almost like I'm having individual tutoring in the application. These are, you know, they're imperfect. Even though they're brilliant apps and they've had a wonderful effect, and and I love them.、Um, but the thing that interests me is like, hey, is there a way to scale Bloom's Two Sigma finding to like primary education?、Mm-hmm. Um, because if there's a way to do it, that's obviously a huge deal. If we could just take the whole distribution. 
of of outcomes mm-hmm. for people and shift them over in the huge way that Bloom's Two Sigma uh, suggests, right? That would be a game changing, you know, world changing mm-hmm. innovation. Um, I don't have the answer mm-hmm. to that question. The the uh, my own interest in that for now is, you know, someday when when I have children, um, I I intend to just apply tutoring and mastery learning for mm-hmm. their education. My my view is that I can solve that problem. That's within my my sphere of control, and I hope to continue to learn about that and uh, see what what other innovation is is there. Um, many software entrepreneurs are interested in Bloom's Two Sigma mm-hmm. problem because they view software as a way to possibly scale it. But so far, based on my understanding, that has not panned out. Like there seems like there maybe there's a um, a kind of human aspect or something that uh, doesn't that just like doesn't work. It's maybe similar to the challenge of scaling the MPC that I mentioned earlier. That like th- there is this element where a human has to be in the loop, and that will always be kind of expensive or or you know hard to manage. So. Um, I don't have the solution, but I do think Bloom's Two Sigma finding is a uh, very interesting, and more entrepreneurs should check it out. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. It reminds me about Elon Musk children. I think they were in some this kind of school, but I can't remember what what is. It. I'll find the link. Yeah. Yes, it's um Ad Astra, I believe. Is oh the yeah, name of I it. think and, that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the one. Yeah. As I recall, they're mm. um. I think they're opening up Ad Astra and trying to like replicate it and scale it out. Mm. But uh, look, I I am um, I, I would argue that Bloom's Two Sigma. There's another dimension here, which is that elites have used tutoring forever oh, yeah. <laughs> as a way of securing their uh, the, the education of their children. Mm. You know, the 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 stereotype of like the Victorian gentleman in mm. England was like I hire my like the sort of mistress of the house or the the tutor to like educate yeah. my children in medieval times you know you go back to ancient greece it was like you know alexander the great being tutored by by aristotle you know uh, th- this this legacy of tutoring uh, tracks um, elite education throughout history and it even continues today because you know the the um, urban elites and people that can afford private schools and all these things also yeah. heavily invest in tutoring mm. uh, for their for their kids. And then the kids do better on the SAT and they go to better schools, you know, all that kind of stuff goes. So um, I'm very interested in what the real costs, and I've, I've done some modeling for this because I want to do this for my own, you know, future family, is modeling the costs of what is the real cost of having a tutor and where are the levers where you can reduce cost or share cost or, um, you know, focus, focus tutoring in such a way that it becomes attainable to someone who is say more middle-class or isn't like a super elite, mm. right? That would be the first step to making uh, Bloom's Two Sigma finding a practical kind of, uh, you know, a, a product and approach that's, uh, that not just super elites can, can access. I see. Great. One last question. What gets you most excited about the future? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I don't know. It's honestly, it's it's a long list. I'm very bullish on the future. I, I'm a believer in um, what economic historian Deidre McCloskey calls the great fact. Mm-hmm. And the great fact is that sometime in the late uh, 18th, early 19th century, like human wealth and knowledge and innovation just started taking off yeah. in this sort of insane combinatorial explosion of, of wealth and possibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, were the we're the inheritors of that. And um, I, I feel like so grateful to be born in the modern era where 
I mean, everything about this experience that you and I are having right now yeah. is enabled by that legacy yeah. of innovation. <laughs> and so I am, I am so excited to see all the ways in which innovation will expand into areas where we did not believe that things could be massively more innovative. So some of these are things like, say, education or startup cities, like, like we've already talked about. Mm. But probably there's all kinds of amazing stuff hiding in plain sight for, for, uh, for medicine, um, for you know, things like mental health. Mm. Like there's, there's all this research on the role of psychedelics, perhaps yeah. like being able to treat uh, PTSD yeah. and depression and all, all these things that people, I think, or, or cancer, you know, like people have talked about the mRNA mm. vaccines possibly having some um, uh, effect on cancer. Mm. I'm not an expert. I'm not going to innovate in those spaces. But I am amazingly excited to see how the web of innovation will percolate out into all of these spaces mm -hmm. and like to see what 2050 is going to be like. I don't believe it's going to be the terrible dystopia that so many people think. <laughs> I think it's going to be amazing. And I'm like, I'm grateful to be living in this time of uh, amazing, you know, knowledge explosion and opportunity that technology and entrepreneurship has created. That's great. Thank you so much for your time. I know it's been a couple of months since we made this happen, but totally <laughs> worth it. Yeah, very nice to talk to you. Thank you so much, Camille. I really appreciate you having me.